Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, we've got a posse of marketing and analytics minds around the mics today, diving into their learnings and the latest thinking and developments around that historically mysterious concept of marketing return on investment, or MROI as we'll call it. It covers everything from media channel mix to product, pricing, weather, and even perhaps the creative messaging. But it's been a terribly difficult concept to nail down for accuracy, efficiency, and speed for so many brands and companies. There are real smoke signals coming out of the market today, pointing to some material advancements in the area, and we're about to hear how, what, and why. So with us today to unpack this meaty and important discipline is Bank of Queensland Group's GM for Retail Marketing, Melody Townsend, CUB's Senior Manager for Data and CX, Megan Quinn, Samsung's Head of Corporate Marketing, Carl Bunn, and Mutiny Group's co-founder, Henry Innes. Welcome to you all. And this is going to be a fascinating one, I think. Henry Innes, we might start with you first. Just maybe give us a quick snapshot on the last decade, really, in marketing return on investment, econometrics, and the challenges that have bedeviled, really, companies and brands trying to get this right. You're all over this. It's a big pet sort of project for you for, what, the last, I don't know, five years, probably, Henry. But Pet project. I'd call it a very real business now. So Sorry. Yes. Obsession, shall we say. Passion. Something like that. Well, so I think if you go back, you know, econometrics is not a new thing in MROI. It's been around for 30 years. I mean, the techniques that we largely use have been quite well established and well grounded in academia and things like that. The challenge with them has always been two things, speed, manipulation of data and cost. I think those things weren't so much of an issue when you had a fairly fixed media market in around the early 2000s when... People kind of, you know, you made one ad campaign, you had to put it in a set amount of channels and you had very limited decisions. Now, marketers probably have more decisions than ever to make. They have decisions to make around all sorts of different components. And the other thing that kind of happened in the 2010s was we had the rise of digital attribution. So suddenly boardrooms and things like that started getting used to seeing dollars, a dollar return next to marketing, even if that dollar return was not particularly accurate or reflective of incremental growth and things like that. So it was at least some sort of data. Any data was data that was going to be used. Is that right, Henry? You know, in that digital stuff? Well, I think any data is often good data and any data can often be used to justify certain genders as well, which right. I think Google and Facebook have historically been very good at doing because they built really good infrastructure around this space. So, but I think, you know, econometrics started to come back and vote to get that total MROI view. The challenge is doing it annually and things like that meant that it was quite a slow process to execute. Cloud basically allows us to do it much quicker. We can use processing power to drive it, and that allows us to build far more executable workflows off the back of it and things like that. And I think the final kind of thing is that the kind of evolving threads in privacy now starting to shut down that conventional attribution and that conventional wider tracking view of the individual. So it makes faster marketing mix more, not less important in that kind of context. 
When we talk about accuracy of the data and accuracy of econometrics, Henry, was it more about the fact that it was used typically looking in the rear view mirror, i.e. it was old data, it wasn't real time, it wasn't current, or was it actually the models themselves that sort of needed to be advanced and developed? Well, so the speed to execute the model and the ability of the model to handle what we call a domain shift. So as an example, you know, where if TV's effectiveness has changed from 18 to 2020, the ability to handle that domain shift was a bit more difficult. So I think that was the first thing. I think one thing I would just say around model accuracy is no model is 100% accurate. And in fact, you know, I don't think you would ever purport to say that any kind of model was 100% accurate. Just as- Sounds like journalism, Henry. Well, it's, um, it's a bit more accurate than journalism, I think, for times. Well, <laughs> scathing. But um, it's important to say that not all models are 100% accurate and things like that. But what they do do is they drive very good and quick insight into the media market. And they particularly drive insight into incrementality and assign value to those top of funnel type activities as well, or those brand driving activities and link them to sales. And one of the challenges, I think, with the market is is in a very performance-driven world, particularly in a world where we are very, very performance-driven as businesses, increasingly we need to be able to at least put the financial case around these things, and that's what MROI can do. Got it. So, Melody, we might go to you in terms of what's been your experience with MROI, sort of the possibilities, the upside, and the shortcomings and realities. How have you historically been doing it, and sort of when did it come to the fore for you as a marketer? Yeah. Okay. Well, if I go back in time and I'm talking, you know, 20 plus years ago, I think it was more art than science. It was very much our media agencies advising us based on their, you know, previous experience and learnings. And then what was challenging about that was our media budgets were very siloed by products. And it also meant that investment in brand over products was always challenged because it was always felt that product marketing will deliver a benefit far greater than that of of simply brand advertising. And it was really hard to demonstrate with any certainty or accuracy why brand building was so important. So that's kind of the historical view. And I think if we think, you know, fast forward to today, you know, 20 years on, the possibilities for us were very much about enabling our media dollars to work harder to prove the value of brand building and brand spend in driving sales. And also really importantly, internally, and I'm sure many can relate to this, demonstrating that marketing is financially accountable and focused on the bottom line. And everything we've been working on with Henry and the Mutiny team has really been about those three things. So that's kind of where we're up to today. There's a lot of upside around having certainty and data points to demonstrate how marketing is delivering for the business. But I think there's also, you know, a long way for us still to go internally. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And so when did you start playing with econometrics and marketing return on investment models? When did it really kick for you? Even in your career, it may not be Bank of Queensland, but when did you play with it? Yeah, I think in earnest, it really has been in the last two to three years that we've been talking more about it. And certainly in these last two years, we've really been looking at what's the data that we need to collect and assemble both internally amongst our agency partners and also looking at external factors. You know, we've worked with partners like CanStar to actually bring in home loan rates as an example historically that we can actually look 
load in to the econometrics modeling. So that's when it's really started. And since then that we've been actually able to gather greater insights and data points that we've been able to share with the business and start a richer conversation internally. Yeah, you're right. We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, five years ago, six years ago, was there always a sort of a voice in the back of your mind going, have we got this right? Is our media mix right? Are we allocating investment in the right areas? Was it sort of stuck in the back of your mind around that, Melody? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like any other company, budget cuts continue to be a challenge any year. Media costs are spiraling upwards. Internally, we're always trying to reduce the expenses across the organization. Marketing is an easy area to take dollars from. And so this is when it became really real. You know, how do we actually demonstrate to the finance department that this marketing should not be seen as a cost? It should be seen as an investment in incremental sales. And so Mm. it really did start years ago. But back then, really, our focus was on, well, let's show that activity is resulting in a customer action, be it a visit to a website, a page view, time on page, a web forms, you know, inquiry. We really only had that to play with. It's really been in more recent years. We've had a lot more to lean on to say, here's where marketing can actually demonstrate its value and its incremental uplift on sales. Got it. And I can't wait to hear how that's gone with the number crunches because it's an all important area to actually be across. To Megan, now your take on this as well and your experience with this, and I think you might have been even something serious like uh, doing econometrics at a bank. Is that right? So at Westpac at some stage. So we should listen to you with great sort of respect. But your take on this, Megan, what's your sense on where all this has been going? Yeah, definitely. So my yeah, my background is economics and econometrics. So that's kind of been the the consistent thread throughout my career. I think it's just really interesting because really I think the advance of like digitization and the investment in new technologies and computer power and data science and machine learning and AI has really unlocked what is easy or not definitely not easy Henry, but easier for companies to access, right? Historically, particularly say thinking in the FMCG space where I am now, it was impossible to attribute your broad media to sales. There's so much going on. You know, you've got your brand marketing, you've got the marketing of your retail network, you've got pricing, you've got competitive pricing. And we didn't have the sort of models available to us, the capability in the business to unpack that connection and the sort of models that you could build, I guess, multiple regression models and that sort of thing, they took a really long time. You know, you have to collect the data manually and then it's given to a data team to process and maybe it takes some six weeks even once the model's calibrated. And so you've taken a month to get the data. It's taken six weeks for them to process it. They give you your quarterly view. It's already been a quarter and you're thinking a quarter ahead. So it's kind of ends up just being this static artifact that you aren't in a place to do anything with. And so even with the best of intentions, the data that you had available wasn't particularly usable and you couldn't use it to test insights and innovate. And so... I think what we've seen is, you know, with War Chest and I think with the advance of like data analytics capability and investment technology, as you have these more dynamic models that are actually empowering you to make decisions because they're dynamic. You put the data in, you've got your like your last month and five days and you can test things and iterate. I think it's been really empowering for businesses and it also helps build belief because you can see the impact of your decisions. 
And so when did this start to get you excited, like the change in how you do econometrics and market mix modelling and MROI and so forth? Has it been a couple of years, Megan, where you've kind of got the spring in your step? Are we talking about a step change here, a quantum step change in how econometrics is done and MROI is done? Yeah, definitely, particularly at like an accessible level for us. I would say within the last two to three years, like even we go back three, four years ago, we had one of those, you know, very manual, very historical methods of getting that, which was getting the data, sending it offshore. And we're only now really using a tool that enables us to do this in a dynamic way that is actually building belief in the business and giving us like actionable insights. It's very new for us. Yeah, great. And we'll dive into some of the how you guys are using this in a second. But Cal, your observations and experience on all this too, you know, you're sort of in a very competitive sector. What's been your experience in around MROI and your sort of observations there? Yeah, I think um, very much like Melody, like those internal conversations about how are we spending in marketing versus other areas of the business and how are our investments continuing to drive value back into the business? I think it's something we've been challenged with for quite a number of years. And traditionally, we've locked a lot of that up in media agencies and the ability to kind of have ongoing improvements in media performance has been absolute. But I think there's a lack of being able to bring that back into the organization in a language that they really understand. And for us, it's been a continued challenge about how do we kind of start to talk in the right language of the business? How do we continue to talk in the way that the business is interested in, which is traditionally about revenue and sales? And I think there's been a bit of a gap in that conversation. And for us, it's been about how do we continue to close that gap? I think Henry touched on a really interesting point about attribution. And historically, we've chased different types of attribution methodologies. And I think the history of those and the future of those is probably to be challenged. But um, over that time, we've tried econometric models. We've had varying levels of success. And, and I think for us, it's really with the changes coming in things like mutiny, it's really allowing us to reimagine those conversations and start bringing that back into some of these senior level discussions in our business. To the point you made from Henry about some of those models or that those data streams being challenged, what did you see there, Carl, that said this is not quite the full picture or it's not quite what everything we need to do? What are you talking about there? Can you break that down a little? Yeah, so I think some of the interesting conversations we've had over the years have been uh, we've continued to see overall performance increases in the way that we buy, particularly digital media. Like the amount of data coming out of digital platforms is phenomenal. And I think we're very data rich, but information poor. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but we continue to see these numbers increase. We're not seeing that reflected in the value of the organization. And so there seems to be like this disconnect in the language that we've been talking and then the translation of that back into the business. And I think that feeds us into a very kind of short-termism approach. Like we end up prioritizing as an organization the things that we know have an immediacy on sale, which is things like price, which is things like moving our product sets around. And I think it actually devalues what marketing can bring and should be bringing. And so for us, it was like, how does marketing start to bring some of this data together? Like we are very data rich, like we do have the ability to join this together. I think maybe our ability to do that has been challenged in the past. But I think in the last couple of years, like Melody and Megan are talking about, there's been some really interesting changes there that have allowed us to kind of reimagine those conversations and allow us as a marketing team to kind of drive that within the boardroom a lot more. You made a couple of interesting points there, Carl. I'm just interested in how you tackle that with your executive team when you talk about that disconnect between the performance metrics that you were seeing, which were up, 
but not being reflected in the business. How did you articulate why that was so until you found a new way? But how did you explain that to the business, to your team, the exec team? That's the tension, right? We are getting more efficient as a marketing team in, in reaching people and getting them to perform the things that are important to us. But it's when the business results are kind of either flat or, or not reflecting that same level of growth that creates a tension in those conversations. And I think it's on us. I imagine it puts pressure back on you too, on the marketing team, yeah. right? And it breeds, I think, a little bit of distrust is the wrong word, but a little bit of dismissive. Yeah, they're dismissing the data that we're bringing to the table. And I think what we're trying to do and what we're hoping to challenge is reinforcing the position that we have and allowing us to be credible in those conversations. Melody, is that your experience too around this and this disconnect? And then how have you traditionally explained that to your executive leadership? Yeah, I mean, it is a challenging one. And particularly in financial services, often there's other environmental factors going on. And sometimes it is really difficult to explain that you know, we might be seeing a great result in our numbers, but it's not reflected in the pull through, you know, to home loan settlements as an example. You know, and when that happens, I think we can do our best to try and get the narrative as tight as possible around what we think is happening. But I think this is where just that ongoing conversation and bringing the stakeholders into more of our planning, more of our thinking early on just helps create that collaboration so that people are more engaged and more willing to have a more open conversation that isn't perhaps just down to the black and white numbers. They're appreciating there are many other factors at play. And while we're doing our bit in the process, some things are at times challenging to explain. And there's lots of variables. So is there a um, an anecdote without going to specifics and naming names, Melody, have you got an example of where that has caused a challenge for you in terms of what the data is showing and what the business results are doing or a campaign or a, a product launch or something that you can talk to that says this is the struggle or this is the challenge? I think, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think we've had a really big challenge to speak of of late in terms of campaigns. But, but one thing I was reflecting on before this conversation was how we've tried to demonstrate what we're doing. And, you know, one example I would offer up is we had a situation early last year where the business wanted to take back an amount of money because enterprise expenses had gone too high and they needed to claw back some of the marketing dollars. And the conversation we actually started with the business was if you took the first 25% of our budget, here's what it would mean to incremental sales. If you took 50%, here's what it would mean. And if you took the lot, here's what it would mean. And that was the most compelling conversation with executives and with the finance department in recent times. And in the end, they agreed only to take 50% of the dollars rather than the lot. And I think that was just testament to this collaboration and this you know, everyone's trying to get on board with the data and the insights. And that was the first time it was actually reflected in the amount of, you know, dollars we had to hand back. And they accepted your projections on what would happen then, right? 
right down to it will be this number of home loan settlements and it will be this dollar value of home loan mm. settlements to the business that will be adversely impacted by taking these marketing dollars out of the mix. And I have to credit Henry because Henry and I spent a lot of late nights talking about this on the phone, how best to position that narrative to get the cut through, not only with finance, but with the broader executive team, some of which are not well-versed or involved in the day-to-day marketing. So I think that was a really constructive discussion at the time. And have those projections landed? Because that was a year ago. So, you know, proof in the pudding. Absolutely, yes. And it continues to be the case. So there is consistency in what we're driving in the home loan business by way of home loan applications and settlements. And so, yeah, that continues to hold true. Megan, have you got some sort of examples around how this has landed for you as well, a bit like what Melody and Carl are talking about? What have you seen experienced in some specific projects have gone? Both cases, Carl and Melody, they're talking about a sort of almost a catalyst shift executive leadership thinking around marketing and what it delivers. Have you got similar experiences on that? I do, to be honest. Um, just hearing Melody's anecdote there it feels very similar to what we've been through. I mean, I think we've been in COVID for the last two years, right? So it's no surprise that I'm sure almost every media budget around the country was being scrutinized, right? It's a really tough business outlook. And so we've found War Chest really, really useful and really, really powerful in telling that story about this is the value of this, you know, media budget that we have. And that, you know, if we take away X amount of this budget, we're not saving that money. We're actually losing money twice as much or three times as much depending on you know where it's come from and what it was going to be doing before and I think it is just helping to tell that story because I think in different areas of the business say something like revenue management they've had probably the tools for a longer period of time to really tell the story around their numbers and performance well and because I think that we've only kind of got access to these sort of tools recently I don't know if we're used to talking about media budgets and the really the impact of media budgets in the same way. So it's enabled us to elevate the conversation, I would say. And so while I've got you, because you're in the weeds on the modelling, Megan, when you talk about this sort of development and we talk about the advancement of econometrics and MROI, what is evolving about it? I mean, I'm a little simple. So what I've got is a catch cry that says something along the lines of cloud-based automated econometrics. That sounds like I really know my stuff. Sounds good. What has evolved about the model now that you're using versus what it did? What is different? Give us like some of that technical stuff for a little bit before we you know, move on. Definitely. I mean, I think maybe Henry's probably <laughs> the better person to, to talk to it from our view, though. Like the ability, I think, of cloud computing to enable, you know, advanced machine learning, AIs, neural networks, models that instead of just thinking like, you know, we've got this variable and this variable and this variable, you know, one, two, three equals seven, actually it looks at the impact of a hundred different variables and all at the same time, because they're not just all acting on one key output, they're all interacting with each other, you know, that it's very relational, that's how things exist in real life, it's not just a one-to-one relationship here and here, and so the models that we have now enable us to look at all of the different factors and how they, you know, impact sales, but how they impact each other as well. And so you've got Mm -hmm. multiplies, you've got it where it's subtracting. And that's what's, I think, added to the richness of our outputs because you really are looking at, I think, an ecosystem of decisions that drive an outcome rather than just inputs and outputs. 
So it's almost like hippie capitalism. It's all interconnected, right? That's sort of where it's actually the data is proving that there's knock-on effects everywhere. So Henry, on what Megan just talked about in terms of the development and evolution of econometrics and MROI, what is going on with the methodology now? What has been done differently apart from my great insight of automated econometrics? What's going on? You want these things to operate faster. So the data has to be coming in, you know, or refreshing in a fairly timely cadence to support the business as fast as the data can basically settle. So data settlement around media can be an issue, but as fast as you can do that, as fast as you can get the sales data, you want to be trying to refresh. So that's thing one. Cloud can do that very quickly. The second thing that the cloud can do is, as Megan rightly kind of said, is it can look at those interrelationships far better than a human can. And so what that allows you to do is it allows you to plan out the ecosystem, look at the impacts across the ecosystem a lot more and start an at least model with a highly relational model versus a model which is trying to regress to basic elements and those sorts of things. So that's step change two. And because you can do that, through kind of, you know, Bayesian statistics basically allows you to just introduce more and more and more data very, very, very quickly. And so that allows us to constantly loop and iterate the models very, very quickly to find a degree of accuracy within the model as well. So we can then start to have more sophisticated domain shifts. We can then start to understand the relationships between the things a lot more. So that as an example, if you see TV spend go down, that correspondingly affects search. It's just a really kind of quantifiable and easy get. I think the third thing is actually around features because I think econometrics and things like that typically been things locked in, one, locked in reports, and two, that it's been hard to start to be quite prescriptive on the insight or the so what outside of a data scientist analyzing it. So we're not fully down this path yet. I wouldn't pretend we're even kind of 10% on our journey in that space, but we've started to move in that space. What it means is it means having smaller, discrete machine learning models to try to generate the so what's off the data. So a really good example of that is if you're looking in the space of saturation curves. The space of saturation curves, typically you'd have to analyze along the curve to plot out that exact nice place of where you should invest, how much you, what's your minimum investment versus what's your maximum investment. With what we're doing is we're just automatically setting those ranges as they change and as the data changes. So what we can tell a marketer is rather than them having to look at this curve, are you over-invested in this channel, under-invested in this channel, or effectively invested in this channel? So that's something we've been mm-hmm. actually working with Megan and her team quite a bit on. And it's something that's really exciting because it starts to take the data out of the data science department and into the marketing department. And the more we can generate those so what's, I think, as a platform, that's how we take data science out of just being this thing which is kind of sitting in a discrete area to really actually empowering every single decision. And I mean, and again, I wouldn't say we're there yet, but I'd say, you know, if we're to look a year on in what we want Warchest to be, it's powering every so what from a revenue perspective for marketers right. and really helping them drive that revenue conversation and drive that brand conversation and giving them the so what very quickly. I'm interested, um, Carl, in what you're doing now. How has it improved what you're doing today and has it shifted the way the organisation thinks, operates, measures? Where are you on that journey? Where are you on that trajectory? I'd like to say it's a journey. Like, I don't know if there's an end destination that we'll say that 
ticked it off for. So I think for us, it's, we've made great credibility over the past couple of years of having these conversations. And I think there's a real demonstration of the value that marketing brings into our business. I think it's on us to continue to evolve what that looks like. And it's on us to continue to look for new ways to bring new data into those conversations and prove out the value of what we're doing. I mean, one of the more interesting conversations I find about MROI, and I think the team touched on this already, is the short and the long kind of conversation. It's like the value of brand versus the value of these short-term sales-led activities. And I think that there isn't an immediate solution for that, but it's on us to start to continue to find those opportunities for those conversations and the data to support what that looks like. And so I think we've made good headway. I think we're using data a lot better now to have the conversations within the organization. I think tools like Mutiny are really empowering the team. I mean, it is one tool in the arsenal of what we have to have these chats. But I kind of see that now as like the start of the conversation in lots of ways. We've got more credibility. How do we continue to kind of drive that forward? Just on the long and short point you made there, Carl, do some of your colleagues still look at you with cross eyes a little strangely that when you talk about long and short performance versus brand, is it much an education process with your colleagues as anything else? Yeah, I think, yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that's a conversation we as Mark has been having for a long time that we will continue to have. I do think there is a level of understanding, but I, I think there's a level of then what does that mean from an investment perspective? Like there's still this kind of short-termism, I think, on ROI metric. And I think most businesses would be guilty of a dollar today might be worth more than a dollar in a couple of months' time or in a year's time. And I think those conversations still need to get richer and we need to kind of progress what that looks like. I think just, Paul, as well, it's really interesting, right? Because I think a lot of the time we run the risk of if we can't demonstrate something, it's hard to make the case for it. And I think, you know, a lot of the time, some of the longer-term activities have, one, they have a much longer length of effect. So as an example, if you're investing in a really awesome, amazing kind of visual campaign that has a high impact on the consumer, the memorability is a lot longer. So you can see the effect happen a lot longer and you can kind of see that across how the market works. So quantifying that's really important. And I think the second thing as well is that, you know, too often, and I think, you know, I've spoken to every single person on the call about this. We see brand as this thing which is sitting there associated with brand metrics when really brand and the activity around brand a lot of the time is driving a hell of a lot of dollars. And so being able to talk about that brand as a dollar and revenue driving asset is how we start to transform like why do you invest in brand? Because it's one of our biggest revenue driving assets that we have. And if that's the kind of position we start to take as an industry, suddenly brand and finance don't have to be these things that kind of, you know, don't understand each other. Suddenly there can be things that are actually in lockstep, which is really exciting, I think. So Melody, what Carl talked about in terms of the shifts that are going on inside the organisation or the impact of how the organisation operates, has it changed what you're doing across the board yet or is it still sort of just, you know, nascent? Yeah, certainly we have started to make changes and that's been, you know, sort of seen across the enterprise. And spot on, I agree with everything Carl was saying earlier. I was nodding vigorously. But I think for us, one of the big changes, and we have been really talking a lot to the business about this, is there was a real focus on, right, well, how many acquisitions can you bring in marketing and at what acquisition cost? And all of a sudden we're saying, you know what, that's actually not the right metric to look at because 
trying to drive it down to the lowest cost per acquisition does not result in the best you know, customer quality. So let's instead think about what is the ROI we're trying to generate and let's focus and optimize towards that. So it may well mean that we're spending more to acquire a customer, but the quality of that customer, the longevity of that customer actually is going to mean more to the business. And that's been a great conversation. And I expected a lot more pushback on that. I really did think they'd say, no, hold on. The number is the number. That's what we agreed at the beginning of the year. That's what we expect you to drive. But actually having that conversation about bringing in quality customers, maybe less of them, but really good quality has been extremely well received by the business. And it's proven out, Melody, is that right? It's proven out that a lower acquisition or a high quality customer might cost a bit more, but it's better for the business in the long term. You've seen that happen. Obviously, a home loan customer, we're talking over many years, so we're going to need more time to prove that out. But early indications across our everyday transaction accounts, our online savings accounts, is that that's certainly holding true. I think that's a really important point there is like not all customers are credit equal. I think the danger here is continuing to drive lowest cost per acquisition and highest ROI. That's not really the angle we should be taking. I think that still continues to push marketing as a cost center and something that's about driving more and more efficiency out of it. I think that effectiveness measure is equally, if not more important, like who are we getting? What's the quality there? Does that align to our objectives as an organization? I think that that conversation is something we need to continue to push. The interesting thing is we confuse CPA sometimes with return on investment as well, right? So we've got all of these efficiency metrics where where you're kind of driving down the cost per lead or whatever it is. But ROI should actually be looking at the revenue, the longevity, the value of that customer throughout the complete life cycle. It shouldn't actually just be looking at the value of that customer at the point of acquisition. And I think the danger of how we've presented ROAS, particularly in digital ad platforms. ROAS, return on advertising spend, correct, Henry? Have I got that right? Yeah. The danger of how we presented ROAS and all of those more conventional metrics, and I think Carl, Mike Dean from CHEP quite eloquently put this, is that, you know, the danger of those metrics is they don't account for that longevity in that life cycle. And, you know, marketing return on investment should not be something that's focusing on the CPA point. It should be focusing on the value that marketing is generating back to the business. And so, you know, that's why, as an example in these models, you don't want to do things like, you know, straight revenue. You want to do things like, you know, profitability or value to the business or gross contribution all those sorts of different metrics that you would look at that calculate the value to the business that's being contributed, not just, you know, the straight up surface level metrics, because that's what we're really, what, that's what we're gunning for. We're gunning for value to business. And Carl, you know, Melody's point about quality customer acquisitions, that's in a banking context and it kind of makes sense, right? It's the same in tech. You're seeing the same in electronics and so forth. You've got quality customers like me and not so quality customers like Henry. Yeah, I mean, quality might not be the way that we think about it, but I think there's a definite kind of CLV conversation that would be unpacked, which is about the value of the investment towards a lower tier product versus the value of the investment towards a higher tier product or someone that's more likely to invest in multiple products over the life cycle. I think that's definitely a conversation that we need to kind of unpack. Megan, so how does this work in an FMCG context? As I get it with banking, you've got data, you've got customer data, you can see the whole data flow, where they're coming through and in. Tech with Carl, still easier than FMCG, but when you've got beer and all sorts of other fabulous products that you do, but it's at a mass retail level, you don't necessarily have that relationship or that connection directly, is it the same for you? What happens? 
I think you've nailed that. That's probably the biggest challenge with us for any analytics, right? So, you know, we're a B to B, not a B to C. We deal with our customer network and then they sell our products. We don't sell to consumers directly. And so the consumer is very, very removed. And then we think about data even more so than other businesses that own their channels. It is very attribution-based because there's so much else going on in the picture. I think from thinking of CPAs and even the value of different consumers, we don't really think about it that way. And it's because, you know, fast moving consumer goods, you can have a bit a day and you can have a bit tomorrow, right? It's not like a home loan where you, you know, generally have one per property and maybe some investment properties. So it's a very different market. And from that, we want to target everybody because that's the market, right? I think where it becomes interesting for us, and I think looping back into the idea of effectiveness is balancing that reach versus relevance. So for us, it's not necessarily each time we're connecting with someone to get them to be a higher value consumer. Although obviously, you know, we do think about willingness to pay and how you might get somebody to try a more premium product, for example. But it's more about how we're making sure with a set amount of media budget, we're impacting more people than we could be. And that's really that relevance piece, you know, instead of talking to a million people where a hundred thousand people are going to be interested. How are you talking to 200,000 people and a hundred thousand people are going to be interested? So, you know, you have more engaging comms, it's more relevant to those people and you're not spreading your reach as wide. And that's where we're seeing the growth in ROI. Obviously we're still going broad, but there's a balance there as well. Mm. Just really interesting stuff. So we've touched on this as much as I could go for hours because I've got so many questions. But in wrapping this up, we've sort of touched on it. But what is the view on all of this from other parts, other functions in the organization, finance, operations, strategy, products, sales? There's an increasing acceptance that oh, marketing might actually have some projections and data here that is really, really helpful to the broader business. Is that landing across the different organizational functions yet? Or is it still for each of you, sort of a work in progress. Melody, to you first on that one. Yeah, I would say across the enterprise, across different business units, there's interest, there's enthusiasm. But, you know, this is a really complex topic. It's taken us a couple of years to get our head around this. And what that then means is we have to really consider the narrative we're driving across the business and we're really clear in our communication. And I think, too, being really open and willing to have the debate around the insights we're putting in front of people. Mm. And I really encourage that. I would like people to debate me on the points and the insights there because if they're kind of walking away going, I don't know if I really believe this, that's not helpful. So You want that on the table, right? Absolutely. Fish on the table. So I think that's what we've really been trying to drive across the business. Here's what we're seeing. We want you to be part of it. We want to collaborate. If there's things you disagree with, if there's things you need more information on, let's make sure we're giving you what you need so that you do become a real supporter of what we're doing. What are the key points, Melody, or the points of resistance, and it may be a bit of too strong a word, but the pushback that you get in the initial narrative as you roll that out and here's how it works, what are the contentious or points of tension from your colleagues on in and around this? Yeah, I guess there's been a few. You know, we talk a lot about base sales. So what's the water level if we did nothing versus where does marketing come in and drive incremental sales? So that right there is a concept that people really want to unpick and explore with a level of granularity. 
And I think too, when we put concepts in front of stakeholders, such as here's where marketing delivers value beyond just a price offer, again, that is something that the business really wants to talk and discuss at length. So Mm -hmm. it's particular concepts as we put them forward that we need to then spend the time, you know, and invest in that conversation. Is that a similar experience for you, Carl? Yeah, I agree with everything Melody said there. What's important for us is that continued engagement and transparency, like taking everyone else on that same journey. I don't think you can just rock up with the solution and expect everyone to buy into it. And it's like standard kind of change management principle. We need to kind of take people on a journey. We need to show them what we're doing and the reason why we're doing it. And we need to be willing to be kind of challenged and work through some of those challenges with the relevant teams. I think that's important. I think that's valuable for us as well. Megan, your experience there, is everyone on board now at CUB on this magic carpet ride or is it still some points of debate to Melody's point? I think it's broadly really, really positive. I think we've had a lot of support from other functions, a lot of enthusiasm for what we're doing and what it means. I think sometimes the gap can be the so what for them. So it's like, well, we've got this and we're doing this and this is what it's saying. And they're like, awesome, cool. But how do we bring that together? And how does that work with the tools that they use to think about shared insights? And do they even say the same thing? So I think that's still a problem for us to solve about how we actually make sure it's working for other teams as well. And isn't just something that they're like supportive of and okay with. I think the broader challenge, and this is just, I would say, you know, a worldwide challenge with the increase in data and analytics and technology is just raising data literacy in general. You know, you want everybody to feel that these tools are approachable and it's something they can talk about and be a part of and you don't want to intimidate people. And so I think raising the data literacy throughout the entire business, you know, from assistant brand managers up to different areas of that executive leadership team is actually how we get the most value out of this. Henry, is this, sorry, go Carl. I was just going to add, I think I was going to mention this earlier when Megan was talking about like what's changed over the past couple of years. And we talked a lot about the platform capabilities catching up and like the ability of cloud computing and SaaS as a solution. But what has also changed, I think, in marketing is data literacy. I think we're becoming more comfortable with the data. I think we're becoming more aware of where data is held across our organizations. And I think that's allowed us to kind of bring some of this together. If I think about some of the challenges we've had in the past with econometric modeling, I think Henry touched on this right at the start. It's tracking down that data was always really hard. And accessing it, right, and getting it into the machine, yeah. Yeah, in the right format, in a place we knew it was. That's why these things ended up taking six months to pull a model together. And I think that continued data literacy is fantastically important. Yeah, great point. Henry, is this typical of what you're seeing across the market today, what we're hearing from the three brands here? Is this reflective of what you're seeing more broadly? I think everyone is on a journey, right? I think that journey comes in three to four parts. I think you kind of install a capability and then as everyone's kind of rightly said, it, it, it's like change management. So you then go on the process of educating people about what the data is capable of and what data can, the decisions can drive. And then it's about kind of, you know, creating the right forums to create those narratives. I would say that, you know, we're probably talking to three of the more advanced marketers in this space on this call. But there are people at varying stages, you know, and there are, I would say that the Australian market has probably matured a lot more in the past year in this space than I've seen it mature in the past five. And it seems that um, people are understanding that looking at MROI is actually a much, much bigger topic than, you know, just trying to track a CPA or trying to just, you know, 
track a gross revenue figure and things like that. There are really important things we need to understand in order to understand marketing's incremental contribution and understand marketing as a revenue generator. And so I think marketers are aware they need to do that work. It's now finding the right right ways, the right processes and things like that that exist around the tool to support things like the tools as well. And, you know, whether that be our tool or another person's tool doesn't really matter. What matters is you also have the kind of processes in place to help support it. Well, we're going to wrap this up with two very final quick questions. One of them is just a complete curveball for me as I'm hearing you all talk. Maybe, Henry, start with you and if someone's got some other views, but has COVID messed with the models at all? Because there's no history to benchmark any of this stuff. So what's happened through COVID that, you know, really basically messes with your minds or has it? Or the models. Megan and I almost fell off a chair when COVID hit, trying to figure out what to do on that. I think um, that was some very hectic calls, wasn't it, from memory? Look, when COVID hit, the models basically went haywire for a month until we figured out what variables to bring in to account for it. So there were some very clear variables you could bring in quite quickly to solve it. We started in two areas. We started with COVID cases, which was not a very reliable predictor. The... One that turned out to be really good was mobility data. So how much foot traffic people moving around in major cities. And we did that by state because the each major city is basically inference for how locked down the state is. That tended to be a pretty good predictor of if that event was radically impacting and it tended to be more reliable as you know, pubs were opening up as an example and things like that. So really did F with it though a lot. Yes. And um, Megan, sounds like you unpacked or decoded everything to sort of get it back to normal. And I'll ask you your quick thoughts on that. But was it the same then for electronics and was it the same for banking? Did COVID mess with the models as well? But very quickly, your take on how you kind of cracked the code, Megan, on through COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, Henry's kind of nailed it. I think the big elephant in the room there is that obviously all the pubs were shut, right? So that's going to have a huge impact on what we're doing. I think you know, trying to put in those variables that Henry was saying, you know, COVID cases, lockdowns to try and account for that means that going forward that we have really confidence with where the models are now. I think, you know, at that point in time, if we look at some of the data from last year and the year before, it's maybe not as meaningful as it would be if we were open, right? Because there's still other things happening. You know, people were buying more from bottle shops. Well, well, I've got to say, I was still buying alcohol, by the way. I might not have gone to the pub. I was quite fancy to it. Yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, and people were, you know, buying different things. So it definitely had a big shake up on it, but really confident that we've actually been out of account for that. So it's definitely not impacting anything going forward. COVID and financial services, Melody, did you have a freak out moment? Yeah, I mean, look, overnight, you know, our purpose at MeBank is to help Australians get ahead. Through COVID, it all turned towards customer care. It was helping people put a pause on their home loan repayments, their credit card, their personal loan repayments. What that meant was all of our models got thrown because suddenly there was no focus on acquisition. There was no need Mm. to drive such, you know, high volumes of new home loan opportunities for the sales force because they were busy looking after existing customers. So absolutely, COVID changed a lot of things for us. Carl, for you? Yeah, I think what I take out of it is um, we continue to invest through COVID. And I think that was continued to be demonstrated in our ROI as well, in that there were a lot of changes that happened in the market, but people got comfortable with buying online. And I think for us, our ability to adapt to that was key. But as a brand continuing to invest, so not just like looking at maybe declining ROI or 
decreasing sales, but actually going, you know what, this, this is a time to continue that investment with the idea that we get longer term payback. Okay, final question, and we're going to wrap this up because it's been a really interesting conversation is from each of you, just a quick key watch out or prediction for the next year or two around MROI. What would you say to your peers, your marketing peers and the broader industry as this clearly is going to continue to get traction? Melody, you first. So I absolutely agree with the data smarts that, you know, continue to grow through enterprises, but I would just say, keep a watch on creative as well, because we've spoken a lot about data today, but creative is all powerful and so important as well. So don't forget creative in the mix here. Gosh, we didn't even touch it. This is the problem, right? Oh my God, there's another podcast, creative and what it can do. Carl, your take. I agree with Melody. I mean, that's a fantastic point that we've skirted around, but the power of creative. Oh my is, God, uh, I feel bad now. <laughs> it's the factor we, we haven't worked out how to build into the model, if I'm honest. But um, my only thing I would add to that is just continue to kind of challenge the business, continue to challenge yourself on, on ROI. Like I think we need to get more comfortable with this. I think we're doing great work. We just, we need to continue to progress these conversations. Megan, your crystal ball and projections for your peers. I think that, I mean, creativity was fantastic. I think it's just that watch out of just, you know, getting the tool, even getting upgrades to different tools isn't going to solve all the problems. You know, models are about turning information into knowledge and you need people at the end to form the right insights and take action and do the so what. And so, you know, operationalizing a tool or a model is just as important as getting it. So just being prepared for that and making sure you're supporting the team along the way. And the final words to Henry Innes. And Henry, I have to get you to give us the universal theory of everything around creativity in 30 seconds in terms of econometric modelling and then give us your sort of watch outs. That's a big brief. But um, creative does have an impact. When are you going to be able to measure that? Well, I think you can measure it a little bit through length of effect. So length of effect and carryover times do give you a fairly strong indicator of how impactful a piece of creative is. So that's probably the best way to do it. Or you can label certain creative assets as well to understand that. But it's a data-in problem more so than anything else. And I think organisation of that data is important. But I think just following on from that as well, you know, I think over the next year, the theme is going to be convergence. And I think the theme, the theme of creative pricing, market, creative pricing, media and finance converging to work together towards the same goals through analytics, I think that's what's going to really happen. I haven't seen marketers have such productive conversations with finance in a long time as I have with this year. And it seems like what initially is kind of being apprehension and things like that on both sides, I think tools like ours and tools like others in the market, we will start to converge those things. And that's a really positive thing for everybody to be working together. Marketing finances kumbaya moment. It's fantastic. It was a most insightful conversation. So thank you to Melody Townsend, Megan Quinn, Carl Bunn, Henry Innes. I absolutely think we have to follow up on this and have a creative conversation as well because to Melody's point, it is a really interesting one and lots of marketers and brands are talking about that. Creativity as a key differentiator, even digital as table stakes really. So it's a really interesting conversation. Thanks for joining. A really, really, really good convo and look forward to following up. Stay safe, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.